This is Dove Tuzman, and you are on equal footing. Tonight is probably the most intense show, uh, well, one of the most intense that I've ever been a part of. It's on the intergenerational trauma of Holocaust survivors, the, the, the lineage of survivorship, surviving survivorship. There have been many studies over the last 70 years around the descendants of Holocaust survivors, the descendants, and it's applicable to all, to all trauma that's in a family lineage and around how that energy, that trauma is passed on intergenerationally. It's caused greater incidents of, of depression, of anxiety. Um, PTSD exists intergenerationally. And there's also a sense of responsibility that we have as descendants of trauma, as descendants of Holocaust survivors. I'm the descendant of a Holocaust survivor. I'm the, of Holocaust survivors. I'm the eldest grandchild of my maternal grandparents who were both survivors of the Shoah. And I felt that my whole life and I can only imagine how the generation above me, the children of survivors feel. Different studies show that even today, uh, over 75 years after the end of World War II, there are still over a quarter of a million children of Holocaust survivors uh, living in the United States alone, and of course, many more in the next generation. If you're not Jewish, or you are Jewish, but there isn't a Holocaust survivor in your direct family lineage. This is also a topic that touches any trauma in a family lineage. The survivor and author, Elie, Nobel Prize winning author, Elie Wiesel said, human suffering anywhere concerns men and women everywhere. So this also applies to other forms of trauma, whether it's group trauma or individual trauma. Uh, Part of the reason I was nervous about tonight is that I, this is going to touch on my family lineage and my uncle Marty, his Hebrew name is Mordechai, Marty Tuzman is here. This is my mother's brother. He's joined us and I am so grateful that he agreed to join. Even a couple of days ago, I wasn't sure whether he would agree to join because this is so sensitive. It's complex. We're also honored to be joined by a wonderful activist and Author, kind of like a translator of her father's work. This is Noemi Lopian. And Noemi's father, Dr. Ernst Israel Bornstein, I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right, Bornstein or Bornstein, uh, wrote The Long Night, which is a, a beautiful book um, that was published not that long ago that Noemi will talk to us about. And he was a survivor. He was in seven different concentration and labor camps during the war. So I'd like to start by giving a little bit more of an introduction on Noemi. I've gotten to to know preparing for this show. By the way, I want to plug her podcast. It's available on all podcast channels. It's called Jewish Mother Me. <laughs> Jewish Mother Me. Check it out. It's great. I got to, to check it out a little bit this last week. Noemi Lopian is the daughter 
as I said, of, of, well, actually I should have said both of her parents were Holocaust survivors, Dr. Ernst Israel Bornstein and Renee Bornstein. And Noemi lived in Germany until the age of 13 before she moved to Manchester, England, which is where she lived, lives now. Um, she qualified as a GP and for the last few years has dedicated her time to educating and commemorating the Holocaust and continuing the legacy of her parents. Noemi spent three years translating her father's book that I mentioned, The Long Night. You can get that on Amazon, The Long Night. She translated that from its original German to English. And Noemi and her mother Renee's story was featured in My Family, uh, The Holocaust and Me with Robert Rinder. It's available on the BBC app, BBC iPlayer. And Noemi has her own website, holocaustmatters.org, which is really great. Check it out, holocaustmatters.org. Um, her husband, Danny, is a businessman. They have four girls, four children, and five grandchildren. And uh, she's done just so much in the community. And I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning also that she's now, I think this is fantastic, working to ensure that the Holocaust is remembering by lo- remembered in future generations by using other forms of media, not just the written word, but actually video games and animation. And she's she's working with a, a producer in Hollywood on these projects to kind of bring to life her father's story as uh, brought forth in The Long Night, but in a way that can uh, be understood and digested by other generations and young people. We're going to talk about that challenge on this show. So, Noemi, welcome to Equal Footing. Thank you so much for staying up so late. I know it's after midnight there in the UK. I think we've got Noemi on the line, hopefully. Well, I will. uh, There you are. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dov. Thank you for the beautiful and eloquent introduction. It's a privilege and a pleasure for me to be on your show. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for all the work that you do in Holocaust Remembrance. And one thing I didn't mention in your bio, Noemi, is I hope you don't mind me saying that you go to universities and, and schools and actually team up with the grandson of a senior member of the Nazi party. And, mm-hmm. and you too talk about Holocaust Remembrance and healing, um, in a very raw way. Obviously he, um, is very open about the shame of, of, of that aspect of his lineage, but able to do so in a way that I think really touches people. So I think it's extraordinary you guys do that together, and I encourage people to, to find some of that, uh, those presentations online. Thank you. Absolutely. Uncle Marty, I uh, love you with all my heart. I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to introduce you in a formal way. <laughs> My uncle Marty Tuzman is an entrepreneur. He's first of all a um, a role model for a lot of people, including myself. He's an entrepreneur. He's a civic activist. He's a business owner in Philadelphia. He employs over a hundred people in the real estate and building maintenance business, and a business actually that was started by our own or Arnold Tuzman, his father, my grandfather. We'll talk about in the show who's a survivor. And my uncle Marty has been an act, has been active in lots of Philadelphia area organizations, uh, not for profit missions. They range from serving, uh, the formerly homeless, immigration services, arts organization, and workforce development. I can attest in my adult lifetime, seeing my uncle Marty as a role model and that he spends as much or more time on serving his community that he does 
on, you know, uh, making money and, and being out there in his business life. Extraordinary balance and very full life. He's married to a, uh, an amazing woman, Eileen Heisman, who, uh, is a force of nature in her own right. And, uh, they, they have five children together, three grandkids. And of course, those are my cousins, uh, who are, um, grandchildren as well of survivors of the Holocaust. And upon the death of my, I call them Zaida and Bubba, my grandparents, Marty's parents, uh, they, Marty's parents, my grandparents, established a program in their memory called the Arnold and Esther Tuzman Holocaust Educational Memorial. Please check it out. You can find it online, the Arnold and Esther Tuzman Holocaust Memorial or Foundation. And this foundation sponsors programs on the teaching and remembrance of the Holocaust in uh, conjunction with Gratz College, which is a, one of the oldest independent Jewish colleges in the world, and I think the oldest actually in the United States, and is home to the world's largest graduate program in Holocaust and Genocide Studies. So a big part of your life, Uncle Marty, is, is Holocaust remembrance as well, and thanks for being on the show. I'm thrilled to be on the show with you. I'm um, glad to be joined with Noemi, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion tonight. This is a hard topic for us as many times as we talk about the experience of our ancestors in the Holocaust. I don't think it, it gets easier. And I found myself, um, I found myself crying and loving this past week, remembering my Boba and Zaida were both survivors. Noemi, can you give us a, uh, basic story arc of your parents and their survivorship? Sure. Thank you, Darby. I'll start with my father, um, Ernst Israel Bornstein. Well, Ernst, he adopted after the war. My dad was 17 in 1939 at the outbreak of war. He um, was born in Zawiecze, that's near Katowice in Upper Silesia. And uh, between 1939 and 1941, he frequently went into hiding and also into the trial labor and concentration camps for a few days. They took them in and then sent them back home. On the 25th of March, 1941, he refused to go into hiding, much to his mother's chagrin, and uh, the Nazis came to their flat, and he was beaten out with clubs. And that was the very last time he saw his mother. Mm. Subsequently, he over four and a half years, he was in seven labor and concentration camps, and he was liberated by the Americans on the 30th of April, 1945. My mom met my dad at Bar Mitzvah. My mom is French, born in Strasbourg, and uh, she was five in 1939. Jewish people and non-Jewish people were evacuated, in my mom's case and her family's, to southwest of France, Saint-Juniard. Her father in that first year didn't come with them. My grandmother had three children. My mom was the middle then, and he fought uh, in for France in the Second World War for one year. My mom, at the age uh, of 10 in 1944, was sent away by her parents. They made an agonizing decision to send them away to Switzerland because the roundups increased and entire families and children would be picked off the street and would disappear overnight. On the way to Switzerland, my mom was looked after by a beautiful in-and-out group leader, Marianne Conn, age 22. Um, overall, Marianne saved 
over 200 children. My mom's group at the time that she looked after was made up of 32 children. Mm. On the way to Switzerland, the Gestapo arrested them. My mom was imprisoned, questioned at gunpoint by the Gestapo. Marianne never made it into freedom. She was taken from prison to be raped and shot. And my mom and the rest of the children were saved by a righteous. He was made a righteous Gentile, the Lord Mayor of the town where she was imprisoned en masse. Uh, Jean de Four, and she was subsequently taken by him uh, to Geneva, and later, six months after that, was reunited with her parents. So you have strength, resilience, and survivorship on on, on both sides. Um, yeah. Thank you for giving. Either I have so many questions. <laughs> when a quick first at the arc on, on both on both sides from both of you of your ancestors' stories, and I thought I would. Just um, put some context to the show in two ways. One, that we were going to do a completely different topic this week, but with the uh, events over the weekend in Texas and really the evidence that anti-Semitism, the scourge is um, incredibly insidious. It just doesn't seem to go away and it grows in the darkness. And it's so important especially now 75 plus years later to continue to remember to never forget to shine this light um, in in the name of of the Jewish people and of all peoples uh, that have uh, traumas and and, and, and oppression um, and of course uh, in this case genocide in their in their past so these events shall never happen again God willing in a further point of context and I mentioned this, Pew Forum study, I think long-time listeners of Equal Footing know how much of a fan I am of the Pew Institute. You can check out their stuff at pewforum.org or Pew, Pew, it's P-E-W, pewinstitute.org. And they do wonderful studies on identity, at least in the United States. And we've quoted this before, but it's apropos to tonight. When American Jews across the observance spectrum uh, have been asked over the years what it means to be Jewish. What is the essential element of being Jewish? There are a whole bunch of things that 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 are listed. Um, nearly half say leading an ethical and moral life, uh, or some version of that answer is what it means to be Jewish. Um, continuing family traditions. Uh, nearly a quarter respond that way. Um, being intellectually curious. Curious. I love this. About half. Of Jews, these are free-form responses, by the way. Say some form of that is is what it means to be Jewish. Um, in fact, here's one some of our listeners may not like, but uh, only about 10% responded that um, observing um, halacha or Jewish law is what it means to be Jewish. But here's the the number that um, that really stands out: over 75% of American Jews, even today, last region of this. Version of the study was from, well, last year, 2020. The f- number one response, over 75% say it's about remembering the Holocaust. That we can all agree on, so that it may never happen again. Uncle Marty, can, I know that we have a little bit of a surprise, another voice coming up, but I wonder before if you could just, um, help listeners understand a little bit about where your parents were coming from. And, uh, and where they were each, each from, maybe then we'll cut to some audio, which I'll explain in a moment, and, we'll, and then we'll come back to you. Thank you, Duff. Um, so it's interesting. Of course, 
in terms of transmission, transmission of uh, trauma, transcendence of trauma, you know, it starts with the families of origin, even before the Holocaust. So it's interesting the kind of the different lives my parents had to some extent before the Holocaust in Poland. But uh, both were from, of course, ghettoized Jewish communities. I'll speak first to my father from a very poor and very small village in Poland. But then, of course, you visited with him, Doug, which was an amazing experience for you and, and my son. Um, but a very small a town. Nazis basically occupied the town. You know, all families, both my mother and my father's families, had to choose who was the most likely to survive. You know, it kind of reminds me of the high school module, you know, most likely to succeed. Who was the most likely to survive? They had to pick the family members and then send them off at some point. Um, my First, the Nazis occupied the town. They um, rallied the young kids who knew all the Jewish families in town, and the job was to go and raid the homes of the, of the Jewish families and confiscate all the menorahs and all the wealth and anything that they had and the jewelry and where things might be hidden and bring it to Nazi trucks. And, and um, my father tells a story of being beaten by Nazis as he would, he would go into a home, he would bring out the menorah, the, you know, the dishes, the silverware, and then be beaten by Nazis on his way in and on his way out, and then need to go to the next home. Ultimately, the family decided that he was strong enough. He needed to leave. He needed to be sent off. Your and he went to the father. woods. And his, My grandfather. My father, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And he was sent to the woods and was, and long stories, and I will abbreviate that, but ultimately lived in hiding, lived in running, uh, was in parts of the world he had no idea. He often said, if I only had a map and I knew where I was and how I might be able to get to ultimately the, you know, land of Palestine. But he uh, went through travails and near death experiences and starvation, etc., and um, ultimately joined the partisan movement in the forests and the woods of, of uh, Poland. Um, there he had to go through the trial and test of, of finding a Nazi and killing a Nazi and getting the gun off a Nazi, which he did, and then was accepted into the group and was in and out of partisan movement and then off on his own hiding, and then ultimately captured by the Russian uh, by the Russians and in Russian labor camps. There he saw death and starvation and people that weren't strong enough. Proudly he built helped to build the Volga Dam there, and ultimately. Uh, escaped from there, was recaptured again, and then the Russians determined that they would reconstitute, rebuild a Polish army, and he was fortunate enough to be brought into the Polish army, and at that point be an officer in the Polish army and live a different life where he um, had a rank and uh, and position. And let me, let me interrupt My, you there, if yeah, it's okay. Sure. And um, I would like to, to play a clip for a moment this is my mother, uh, Ani Tuzman, uh, Hana Tuzman. By the way, you can get her book on Amazon, which is the, uh, a biography of the Baal Shem Tov called A Tremble of Love, A Tremble of Love by Ani Tuzman. She's also working on a book that's actually a love story based on your parents, Marty, my grandparents, um, and their meeting at the, at the end of the war. And this is, what she read, at least part of what she read, and then Marty, maybe you can complete it, um, at Myzaida, your father's funeral. It's called My Father's Many Lives. The man with so many lives, the man who lived in possibility. Life number one, 
Aharon flees Zatlikov, leaving behind a mother and two younger brothers, father already dead, oldest brother in Palestine. Take second oldest brother along, who can't fend for himself. Mother sends Aharon away, knowing he can save himself, but not her, Yoyala or Berala. Life number two, thrown out of a hospital with typhus and paratyphus. No hope for him, better to free the bed, the doctor says. Weighed ninety pounds at most, skeletal, delirious. His brother gave him gutter water to sip. His bones grew more flesh, fever subsided. Life number three. Crossing the border into Russia, bribed a farmer with a hay cart, two bottles of vodka, one for his life, one for his brother's life. Barely missed getting stabbed with the Gestapo's pitchforks, or got stabbed, but didn't bleed visibly. Life number four, on the Volga River, prisoner of Russian labor camp, Managed not to let his hands freeze to the shovel like so many other hands cut off right there. Tourniquets for some, bleeding to death for others. Life number five, ate frozen cat and dog in Siberia to stay alive, force-fed his brother, Meyer. Life number six, saving his frozen ass by volunteering for the Polish-Russian army. Life number seven, more vodka traded and whatever other contraband Arnold could wrangle and trade to stay alive as a Jew in a Polish army. Life number eight, becoming chief quartermaster and controlling all manner of things, sugar, Boots, rifles, schnapps, flour, and salt to siphon off as needed for bribes. So, I think we're on life number nine. Lose. Him going AWOL, AWOL, three times to keep, I'm sorry, one second, to keep an eye on the woman he would marry, who, unlike him, did not want to live at all costs but rather the opposite. So now he's keeping Meyer and Esther alive, neither as keen on living as Aharon. Life number 10, post-war. Soldiers surround Lieutenant Tusman's apartment building in Berlin to capture and court-martial the quartermaster, warned by a messenger sent by Esther to find him at the crowded theater Hosting the political rally, Aaron does not return home, moves Esther to a different apartment. Life number 11, selling bread by the slice to people in ration lines, making enough to feed Esther and Meyer, to buy silver and crystal cheap, to bribe the officials for false papers out. Life number 12, 13 and 14, his new wives, his brother, and his all leaving Berlin on false papers, heading for Dem Goldener Land, 
the golden land, giving away a silver spoon or fork if things get dicey. Mm. We're talking about Holocaust remembrance. That was a story told by both my mother. That was an actual recording of what she spoke at my grandfather in blessed memory, a survivor, his funeral, and my uncle Marty continuing with that story of, of his life called My Father's Many Lives. I'm joined by Noemi Lopian, whose father, Dr. Ernst Israel Bornstein, wrote The Long Night, and Noemi translated it from the German to the English. She's an extraordinary vo- voice and activist and Holocaust remembrance. Marty Tusman, who uh, manages the Arnold and Esther Tusman Foundation and its work around Holocaust remembrance. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. I never liked the part. It ain't pretty, it ain't subtle. What happens to the heart? got a fiddle, the devil's got a harp, every soul is like a minnow, every mind is like a shark, may I have broken every window. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by DocuVax. DocuVax is an easy-to-use digital medical locker. It allows you to store all of your personal medical information safely and securely on your smartphone or on your laptop. You can find it online at docuvax.com. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com. Or go to your uh, Apple or Android app store and just download DocuVax, D-O-C-U-V-A-X. For as little as $6.99 per month, you can download and categorize and get validated all your vaccination records, your lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. So gone are the days of losing time, tracking down your old medical records, or trying to figure out how to share test results with a new healthcare provider or a new insurance company or a new school. It's cheap, it's easy, it's secure. Go to docuvax.com. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com. The best part is... You get doctors and nurses on call for you 365 days a year, 24 hours a day to validate anything in your medical file. You can get a reference to a medical specialist without having to spend unnecessary money revisiting your general practitioner. And you can share information that you need to, like your vaccine status, for example, without having to share information that you don't want to, like your full name or your birthday uh, or other things in your medical file. Your medical information does not belong to your doctors. It's good for them to have it, but it does not belong to them. It certainly does not belong to your insurance company, and it absolutely, 100%, doesn't belong to the government. So take your medical data into your own hands, put it all in one central secure place on a HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility and database. Go to DocuVax, take control of your medical file, and if you're a small business owner and you want to offer this as a health benefit to your employees, much like a gym membership, you can get group discounts for DocuVax if you mention that you heard about it on Equal Footing. Again, this is little, as little as six ninety nine per month, and with the discounts, it can be as little as $5 per month per employee. Call 833 for these group discounts. Call 
855-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. I've been You're back on Equal Footing. I'm here with Noemi Lopian and Marty Tuzman, who are bravely uh, probably battling through the emotions to talk about their parents' experiences as survivors of the Holocaust. And if you have not heard of the term epigenetics, um, I want to I want to educate you for a second. Epigenetics is the study of how your behavior and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. Uh, unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible, so they don't change your DNA, but they do change the way your body reads your DNA. This is not conspiracy theories, this is science, guys. Epigenetics is a whole field of this. There's been many studies about children of survivors, even grandchildren of survivors, and the epigenetics of survival lineages are different than folks who have not experienced extreme trauma in recent generations. This is a thing. It, if there's higher incidence, as I said at the outset of the show, we, ch- children, grandchildren of survivors live sometimes with lifelong PTSD that they don't even know they need to deal with. Higher incidence of anxiety, of depression. I'm sure many listeners have heard of the concept of survival's, survivor's guilt that exists both, has existed with both survivors of extreme trauma, but also with the, also with the generations after that. Noemi. You are a hero of mine because you have taken your father's trauma. He was in seven camps in World War II, and you have transformed that. I've just seen in dealing with you, we've done, we've been doing Zoom calls, we've been, uh, I've been reading and, and watching you in interviews with the BBC and other media outlets. You have such warmth, such joy, and, and you smile so beautifully, and it's, you said in one of our conversations, it stuck with me, there was, there's no like romance in the, the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and you, but you, you somehow come out of that with this dedication, a joyful dedication to remembrance. How do you do that? How do you pass it on to your children, directly to your girls, and also to the school children you talk to and even a younger generation without it transmitting PTSD? Mm, it's a very good question, and it, it's difficult. And actually, I'm always, always aware of that that I that I inspire and uplift, or at least educate, but not hurt. And in particular, actually, the biggest challenge was I was invited to speak in a school in Liverpool to children that had undergone PTSD because they had been harmed uh, mostly by their dysfunctional parents, and they were all teenagers. And it was their psychologist that asked me to speak, and I was really resisting. I was frightened. I said, how can you speak to children who already have so many struggles in their lives? And it was actually an extremely positive experience, and it wasn't actually me that spoke. I was lucky to have a survivor speak. And they bonded over their traumas, even though they were very different, and they they inspired, and what you said before, the word resilience, and gave each other strength. I am a little bit like um, our Kedoshim, our Holy Ones, our survivors, and those that passed, in that I don't find it easy to speak to my own children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whether that's just with a show or other things, so it's easier if there is some distance. Um and, uh, yeah, I think 
my father, I was lucky, was a very loving father, warm, and my mother is warm. And um, I also saw how they behaved to other human beings. So when I go into schools and university, I try and peel the Shoah back. And in essence, I teach about being what we call in Yiddish a mensch, being a decent person and a good person. And you might be surprised that this is something that needs educating. I feel it does because I feel all of us, whatever color, race, religion we're born to, None of us in particular like different. It's how we're wired. And social media platforms, they love that up because they always give us the same. So we have to be educated on at least accepting different and not hurting, above all, not hurting different. You confided in one of our conversations in in that you, you shared that your father, while he would speak each year on his experience, I think it was in Dachau, mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't speak directly to his children about his experiences in the Holocaust, yes. at least for a very long time. Yes. That's he he, well, he my, shielded you from, from that yeah, trauma. Yeah. Both, both our parents did. I was 12 and my sister 11 and my brother 7 when my, our father died of a heart attack. Mm. And um, I just always knew that my mother was very protective of our father, mm. and I knew something had happened, mm. but um, I don't think any of us could imagine without learning about the Shoah, the Holocaust, what happened. And I actually came to the Holocaust, I'm ashamed to say, very late. Mm. I read as an adult uh, the book, my father's book, The Long Night, for the first time at the age of 36. I was blown away when you say you picked up his man. It was it was a manuscript at that point, right? It no, been. it was it was it, it existed in German. Oh, it existed. I in lived German. with it subconsciously on my mother's bookshelf in her lounge. Mm. My mum's lounge is very ornate, but mm. the long night was on its own with no ornaments, nothing mm. on this mm. bookshelf. Mm. And you read it at the first time. You, the story of your father's trauma and your your mm-hmm. father's survival. Across seven camps, you read for the first time in your mid-30s. Yeah. I read it Uh. once as a child, just after he passed away, but it was like as if I'd never read it. I don't know. It just, a psychologist will have a field day with this, but I just, uh, it just, I don't know where it went. Uh. It it went, and then, and then, yeah, then after the birth of my youngest daughter, whilst I was on maternity leave, I read it. Now, Marty, I want to juxtapose that with the, Tasman family experience. And one of the things I've been humbled by in preparation for the show is the realization that maybe elements of my memory are wrong in terms of the stories that that my, my boba inside and my grandparents told me, or maybe I didn't want to hear certain things because in researching for the show, I've been learning things about the story I thought I knew. But my I have recollections as, a, as being a very small child and hearing stories, I'm sure not planned, kind of sometimes outbursts around the Holocaust experience. You, of course, were oh, so much closer to that. You were, you were born only, they were, they had only been back um, some years um, after the war, they, when they came to the United States. Did, did my grandparents, your parents talk to you about their experiences when you were a child? Um, so, there was not a day in which the presence and the awareness of our Holocaust 
legacy, their background, their, their trauma, uh, what they suffered, what I knew about it, what I didn't know about it. There was not a day in, in my mind now, and of course what you said a minute ago, Dov, about what we all think we remember. For me, it was, for us, I think your mother, Annie, can say this as well. Of course, my younger sister was younger, but it was a reality that was just in the air in everything that happened, uh, that uh, there was a palpability. It was palpable at all times. And my father was very, very liberal with sharing stories. Um, And I I then had literally the same nightmare every night. And in my memory, it's kind of, it went on for years, but it would be every night that that we lived at that time on a chicken farm in South Jersey. And I would be running from chicken coop to chicken coop, which were just like, uh, you know, Auschwitz uh, coops, literally in in reality and in my mind. And I would be escaping the Nazis bombing us on our chicken farm in South Jersey. Mm. That's how palpable it was. And, uh, you know, I, it felt to me like I was getting bedtime stories around it, whether that was reality or not. Right. But uh, for my father, it was very articulate and very regular. And uh, sometimes with bravado and pride about the Nazis he was able to kill or how he survived and the incredible tales of suffering. For my mother, who was very um, pained, and difficult to speak of. Uh, you, it, the, 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 again, the pain was palpable. The silence was powerful, mm-hmm. and the sense of trauma was there. And it was interesting because this was reserved for the family in some ways, and then out there in the world, they were very kind of outgoing people, and 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 had their group of other survivors, and literally was were in a, lot, a few associations of Holocaust survivors. So, you know, and everybody they met with had, um, you know, uh, numbers on their arms, although my parents had never been corralled into a concentration camp. They escaped, you know, in various ways and were on the run. But, um, but I lived in that environment always. And as a kid, it was, it was terrible in many ways. It was traumatic. It was, it was, uh, omnipresent. And, uh, and so much of my life was about avoiding it. Uh, I remember when the, the movement of children of survivors came out, the book came out, and I just wanted no parts of it for the longest time. Get me out of here. And I became a very young rebel who needed to escape. And so that balance and that transcending trauma and the intergenerational passing of it, you know, both intra and inter, what did I get from them? How did I need to process that internally? How could I become somebody different? How could I escape from those stories? How could I find joy? How could I find self-determination? Mm-hmm. So it was very much an inner, an inner challenge for me and a long transition of figuring out how to come to terms with it, how to come to terms with the epigenetics, mm-hmm. with who I am, with how much not only the Holocaust, but the pogroms of hundreds of years ago and the destruction of the temple, how much of that is in my genetic makeup. So when my wife, who grew up in an American Jewish family, hears me speak, says, the Holocaust is over. (laughs) Pogroms are over. So it's really there, but it's always a balance of figuring out how to kind of transcend it and become a different person. 
I want to point listeners to the to some of the things that my that uh, my uncle Marty was just was just talking about. There's a, a Dr. Rachel Yehuda has been a leader in this field. Uh, you can go to the Veteran Affairs site. You can also look up Dr. Rachel Yehuda. She's done um, really helped helped uh, introduce this concept of transgener intergenerational trauma, particularly as it relates to the Holocaust. There's um, the Project Muse work. Uh, it's been done by uh, you know Faye Shalatin and others. Um, probably one of the more interesting uh, pieces of literature, scientific literature on transgenerational transmission of Holocaust trauma is by Dr. Bina Neer. And she actually talks about, the, you described it in your nightmares, Uncle Marty, the um, kind of the, the presence of the Nazi beast. And the transgenerationally, even though, yes, your wife Eileen is telling you the war is over, you know, the Holocaust is long over, there is this sense of, 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 of looking over your shoulder. There is this not, this silent kind of Nazi beast in the family lineage that's, 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 um, that, that oppositional, um, terrifying figure. No, I mean, did you, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I'm just using the, 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 the language mm-hmm. that, that struck me. Have, do you feel that in your lifetime, in your children's lifetime, that you still struggle with the Nazi beast? Well, the interesting thing is I call the education and what I do um, challenge myself how to make this generation understand and empathize and always say, why should they care about something that happened 80-odd years ago to a bunch of people that they have nothing to do with? And I say I'm passionate but my family says that I'm obsessed with it. I, I am obsessed right. with it because when I read The Long Night and when I found out what happened to a little girl and, you know, my father was Polish, my mother's French, and they just did all that just just because we were born to the Jewish faith. I won't even call, say the name Jew. I'm so sensitive because I feel it's derogatory. The Jew is never said in a positive way. Um, it hurts. I I didn't quite have the same um, dark cloud as Marty. Mine was expressed differently, and I don't think my mum even meant it that way, but she always said uh, not to draw any attention onto ourselves, um, to be quiet, to be well-behaved, to be clean. She always said they call us dirty Jews, dirty Jews. Mm. So I always wanted to disappear. And only in my talks I always say, did I have to come out? I never volunteer to anyone that I'm Jewish. And I always worry about anybody who's visibly Jewish that they might get attacked or they might hurt. And um, I always want to explain really what hatred of, I always call us citizens born to Jewish faith or who are culturally Jewish, what that means, anti-Semitism. People don't understand that that threatens our very, very existence. Um, and... And this is my aim, to really to teach people and to share human values and humanity. Because I always say, yes, this happened a long time ago, but uh, human characteristics don't change, not from the past, not from the present, not from the future. I can only imagine how you both feel about remembrance, because as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, I am terrified by the idea that it would be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as it wasn't as um, central to my childhood as it was to yours, Marty, and I'm sure to yours, Noemi. But 
even to mine, it was a central organizing idea of my childhood, listening to my grandparents and particularly, particularly as you said, Marty, um, my grandfather, but, but at times also my grandmother, um, only if pushed, only if asked and only under very particular circumstances, but she lost all of her siblings, um, in the war and, and some who may have actually died in front of her. Um, lost her parents, lost basically everybody except one uh, cousin who, um, who went to Canada. And I am, you know, I'm a father now and I, and I don't know how to, um, communicate about the Holocaust to my 10 year old daughter. I know she needs to, and she heard, she learns about it in school to some extent, but I'm, I'm, I don't know how to do that in a way that doesn't, traumatized but also in a way that endures um but it is terrifying to me that maybe my daughter or my daughter's children god willing someday wouldn't somehow know and remember so acutely in our last segment we're going to take one more break um i hope that that we i'm sorry i didn't do this before but i'd like to hear from some listeners around their experiences and their family Anything you want to say, anything you want to ask, you can call 718-303-9090 to participate live. That's 718-303-9090. We probably have time for one, maybe two calls. And certainly text any questions or comments to 917-428-4062. I've gotten a couple already of folks who had the number from probably other weeks. But please text your comments or questions or sharings on Holocaust Remembrance, on Surviving Survivorship, to 917-428-4062. We'll be right back. Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Back on equal footing, I'm Dove Tuzman. You know, Holocaust Remembrance Day, I believe, in the United States is May 4th, and I think it's a different different days in different parts of the world. What is it in the UK, Noemi? Is it the same day? Uh, 27th of January. Okay, so coming so that's up. that's next Thursday. Yeah, very yeah. apropos to your environment. But yeah. I wanted to do the show this week because uh, this weekend, so many of us were shocked here in the United States and I think around the world that just an, another... Um, Another, uh, whatever you want to call it, a terrorist act, a, a uh, 
a an act of, of anti-Semitism, and it's like a constant cloud, and it's so important to continue to remember, um, to not let the fire go out in terms of our remembrance of the Holocaust and of all of the genocides that have occurred in so many family lineages around the world, um, many holocausts, uh, whether you're Jewish or Armenian or Cambodian um, or in various uh, peoples and native and indigenous peoples around the world, um, this this lineage exists. We're, I want to challenge, we've got a couple text comments and questions, but I want to challenge you guys well, this may, I, I'm going to have gotten a limb here to, uh, find something light and beautiful in Holocaust remembrance. And what, in your, in your uh, talks, Noemi, and you're talking with children, you must have to find the light to connect with them. And I know you're now doing like Holocaust remembrance through video games, for example, which is just yeah, astonishing yeah. and wonderful. How? What do you find? What do you seize on that so isn't just darkness? I think it's important. The Holocaust defined us as people born to the Jewish faith as victims. It's the perpetrators that did the Holocaust. We are not like that. So I talk about us, how we are as human beings. So it's very important always to describe the people and the person, and in particular always before they did the Holocaust to us, what their lives were like, our parents' lives, what they were like as children, as young people, their characteristics pre-war, and what they did because they lived like any other human being. Like you say, your grandparents had a love story, of They loved and lived like anybody else. So people can, can empathize and understand Jewish people are people like any other. And that's, that's very important. And then to take them through it and take them through with feelings um, what happens and try and explain the story at their level. And uh, and it's important to keep it to their level. Then it's enriching and not damaging, and then you can grow. But for that very reason, I decided uh, I teamed up with Saul Blinkoff, who's a Disney animator and director who's brought out, uh, been involved in Mulan, Tarzan, and Pocahontas. And we're working together with a studio in Elstree, Martin Nyman, and together um, with a writer, we're bringing out an animation of The Long Night. So to attract young people and make it easy for them to have a shared viewing with their families, to have an immersive experience and give it that first exposure, and hopefully they will go and look for more. It's so great that you've been willing to connect those dots, you know, animation and video games and connecting that to remembrance. May your, may your work be a blessing. Uncle Marty, I, there's a family, I don't know if it's myth or reality, but there's certainly a love story in, you know, in or near the Holocaust in our family. Can you tell our listeners about that? The, the meeting of, um, of Zayda and Boba, is that the story you would, uh, you're referencing? Yes. And by the way, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm so embarrassed. But I gotta say, because <laughs> I'm gonna get so many emails. With, May Fourth, I, I think International Holocaust Remembrance Day is the 27th of January. I, I'm a Star Wars fan. Is that why I was thinking May Fourth? <laughs> well, foot in mouth. No, I think you know. Or, I think do I have that? Where did I pull that out of my brain? 
it's celebrated different times. Uh, some sometimes it's celebrated or Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. I think it's different uh, times at different locations, and I think also sometimes it's around April, which is the memorial of the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto, right. uh, April nineteenth or so. Right, so it's right, often right. around the end of April. Of course, it's on the Jewish calendar, which will vary from you know right. year to year. Um, as Hanukkah varies from year to year. So in any event, that's, it's, it's celebrated. I've noticed that, that it's celebrated at different times, in both January and in the spring. Okay, all right. But I would, um, if that's the story you're referencing, that'd be great. But I would like to share, when you ask the moment to bring a lighthearted story or some other perspective, I had the most powerful experience meeting a woman I'll never forget who was the cashier in, I think it was the Tampa Holocaust um, uh, Museum, and she had, she was so kind of bright and cheery and high energy, and just her face beamed. She had an accent, and she didn't appear to be that old, but she was a survivor. And it was probably fifteen years ago I met her, and I'm like, "You're a survivor? Like, where's this energy coming from?" Right. And I befriended her and chatted with her for a while. She's Oh, that, and I spoke of the weight of my parents and the stories and the pain and suffering and, and the, and the feeling of persecution always. And she said, no, no, no. My job is to live fully, vibrantly, mm-hmm. to thank God I survived, to give that love to other people, to mm-hmm. remember yeah. what it's like to be persecuted, what it's like to live on the other side mm-hmm. of love, of living fully. And and so there are, you know, families mutate or families pass on the, the legacy differently. Uh, but this was a woman who understood her mission was to love. Her mission was to understand. Her mission was not to separate Jews from others, but to be embracive and inclusive and to give that love to others. So that's, that's a wonderful other perspective that, 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 um, that, that's on the other side of all this. And, and you know, I would in, say that, um, in their best moments, uh, my grandparents, your parents, did transmit that. I remember moments of them expressing basically that victory, beating Hitler was um, enjoying. And and not, not, of course, perpetuating. Yeah, that that was the best revenge is the perpetuation of generations and the enjoyment and the love. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the wonderful story, which which I'll tell very, very briefly. Yeah, we do have a caller on the line. So let's get, I want to get to them. So, yeah, go ahead. Very briefly, my mother meeting my father as he she was hitchhiking and he was running a Polish convoy of military trucks, and he gives a you know beautiful young woman as he you know he would say red hair he takes her takes her for the ride and then ultimately stops somewhere and he has a suspicion and he puts his head down and says the bracha the blessing over the bread and my mother starts to cry because she thought she was the only Jew left in the world. Right. And she wanted to commit suicide at that time yeah. and somehow did not have it in her. And ultimately, thus begins a marriage and uh, and the lineage that goes on from there. So, and, and it may be apocryphal, but I also remember this, the story of of, uh, of my grandfather telling her that he had fallen in love with a young lady and I wanted her blessing and seeing her starting to tear up and then, you know, admitting it, confiding in her that it was that it was in fact her. That he was, <laughs> he would tell that. Let, let's take let's take a quick call here near the end of the show. Um, let's see, line five, you're on the air. Can you hear us? You still there, line five? 
All right. Well, maybe we've maybe we've lost them. Uh, we have a question here uh, from a listener about a therapy. This is a listener who also has um, Holocaust survivorship in their lineage and has struggled with it ever really being dealt with as a family and was wondering whether either of you had any exposure or knowledge about a therapy technique called family constellations. You guys, are you still there? Are you having an audio problem? <laughs> it could be no. If not, have either of you heard of, of a, a children of survivors therapy technique called uh, family constellations? No. Okay. I think, I think we had lost, uh, I think it was my fault, by the way. I accidentally hung up on Marty and here we have our caller on, I think I'm, I'm hitting line three. Uh, all right. I think we've got Marty back on the air. Can we get caller on line three back in the air? Caller, can you hear us? All right. Um, well, we have, well, let's see. We're running out of time anyway, but here's, there's a question, um, a, a, a comment actually. Um, this is a listener who, um, has their, their grand, like me, a grandchild, a granddaughter of, uh, of a Holocaust survivor and wants a basic primer on when to talk about, uh, the Holocaust, when to talk about the Shoah with their children at what age? You, we talked a little bit about that in the, some of the pregame, Noemi. What's your view yeah, on that? Yeah, I think, I think it depends. You can either start from about 10, 11 with sort of maybe stories like kinder transport, if you want, you know, where just to say a little bit about the climate in Germany. And if not, books like my father's, I think only from the age of 15, 14, 15, uh, with concentration camps and labor camps. So um, you can start even a little bit and go back even to more basics like bullying and and what happens when one isn't kind and how much acts act of kindness, I always say, don't make you feel double as good, but they're explosive and they're exponential. And we know that ourselves when somebody throws us even just a morsel of kindness, how that pings in our hearts and it expands and it makes our hearts beat happily all day. Mm. Um, so I think go easy and slowly and layer it, go back to it, and hopefully the schools too or initiate, but the schools do it and that it's a shared experience and that you can talk it back again as a family, sort of back and forth. Marty, a big part of, of your mission through the Arnold and Esther Tesman Foundation is, in fact, when to teach and how to teach Holocaust remembrance. What is, the, in your view, the right starting age and did and what age did you start to talk to your children my cousins about the holocaust well it depends on what what it is we learn about and from the holocaust i would say that it's never too young to think of tikkun olam making the world a better place of having a mission that that overcomes the hatred of the holocaust that that is about making quality people that treat people um you know, with, with love and respect. So it's never too young for that. And I would echo what Noemi says in terms of in early teens. Uh, and we teach it to, to grads. We teach teachers how to teach about the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, um, I encourage, we're, we're wrapping up here. I encourage all listeners to uh, check out uh, Noemi Lopian's 
work through holocaustmatters.org um, and and her father's beautiful book, The Long Night, a beautiful and moving book, and Marty Tuzman, his efforts through the Arnold and Esther Tuzman Holocaust Teaching at Gratz College. Thank you so much for being on Equal Footing, guys. God bless. Thank you. Yeah.